Treehouse products are crafted to bring you the best that legal, delivered-to-your-door THC has to offer. Treehouse utilizes unique blends of carefully selected minor cannabinoids that get you lit in ways you've only ever dreamed of. From Delta-8 vape pens with innovative blends of Delta-9 and THCP, to the tastiest HHC-infused syrups and hemp flower pre-rolls on the planet, Treehouse has got you covered. Ready to delight in dank gummies and puff-powerful vapes? Head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. There's only one E, not two, in treehouse.com. When you go there, get 30% off your order and a free Acapulco Gold HHC pre-roll. You can use the coupon code GENIUS. That's G-E-N-I-U-S. This offer expires August 31st, 2023. Grab your goodies and meet us for some fun in the treehouse. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Clarice Aiello. She's an assistant professor, quantum engineer at UCLA. And we're going to talk about uh, how quantum physics forms biology at the nanoscale and how it, you know, how biology uh, perhaps exhibits quantum-like behavior. So, Clarice, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, Richard. It's a pleasure to talk to you and to your audience. Well, tell me a bit about your background and how you got interested in this area. Okay, so I like to call myself a quantum engineer. This means that I build instruments to study and control things that are so small and so well protected from their environment that they are usually better described by the laws of quantum mechanics as opposed to the laws of classical mechanics that rule everything big around us. So uh, I am trained in a field called quantum sensing. You can actually prove that if you uh, use a quantum object, for example, an electron, as a sensor, your measurement is improved. In other words, the sensor quantumness enhances your measurement. This was the field that I was trained in. I used to work with a sensor. What does that mean? It's a quantum sensor because the energy levels of a captured electron are discrete. Is that why it's a quantized or quantum sensor or uh, the definition? No. Uh, so that's the, the cool part of it. So uh, as uh, you know, and some of your audience might know, at, at the quantum level, energy is quantum. So that, say, an electron can have only a discrete energy levels. The the spectrum of energy that an electron can have is sort of like segment. What makes quantum objects work very well as sensors is the fact that they can be put into superposition state. So, for example, electron spin. So, spin is a fundamental quantum property of matter. It doesn't have a classical counterpart. And spin measures how well an object interacts with the magnetic. In the same way that charges measures how well an object interacts with an electric field. In the same way that we, we call charges positive or negative, it's just a convention, spins are usually depicted with an arrow, spin up, arrow up, or spin down, meaning two different energies of this electron, of this electron spin, in a magnetic field. It turns out that uh, electrons and electron spins can be put in a superposition state. That is, it's both arrow up and arrow down at the same time. There's nothing magical about it. It's just like different laws of nature that kick in at very tiny land scales. But the fact that 
you can put this electron into a superposition and the fact especially that the up part of the superposition interacts differently from the down part of the superposition. For example, with a magnetic field makes the electron a very good sensor of magnetic field, for example, not only, right? So quantum sensor is a, is a sensor that harnesses at least superposition, in parentheses, maybe also entanglement, but that's not necessary, that uses at least superposition as a resource to work and to work actually optimally, much better than if you couldn't put an object into a superposition, which is true for like microscopic. Right. But in the lab, I can see how you could have you know, well-shielded systems that you can see quantum behavior by the biological systems. They're much warmer. And uh, there's, I would guess there's like tons of interactions going on. So how could you see quantum behavior in biological systems? Yes, you are right. And let me tell you something. So it's already known that some technological quantum sensors also work at room temperature and under messy conditions. For example, the technological quantum sensor that I worked with during my PhD is an electron trapped in diamond, in the material diamond. That electron works as a quantum object, as a sensor, at room temperature and uh, under messy conditions. You can put it, like, say, even inside a biological cell or, or like, it, it works near to, like, materials. So the um, important part here is to realize that even the, the, the quantum sensor that is native to, to nature or the quantum sensor inside this material diamond, it only gives you quantum-enhanced information before it thermalizes with the environment. You're absolutely right. Those quantum objects, uh, they, they thermalize very quickly. Everything that starts quantum dies classical as objects start to interact among themselves, as temperature effects start to kick in. But before that, before thermalization takes place, you can extract quantum-enhanced information out of those objects. What is quantum-enhanced information? What does that mean? Information uses those superpositions, it's information that rely on this resource called superposition. And this resource called superposition can be shown to uh, improve the way that those sensors interact with their environment. It only works because for a long enough time, those sensors can be put in a superposition state. After the sensor thermalizes, no superposition can be sustained anymore. The, the quantum object becomes better described by classical loss again, and then it ceases to exist as a good enough quantum object. And then you have to start your experiment again, right? So turns out. I have a yeah. quick question here. So let's say with semiconductors, I know there's electron tunneling if you're near like a gate, you know, in a semiconductor. Mm -hmm. If we're able to look at various chemical interactions or other phenomena fast enough, let's say at the femtosecond level or you know even a shorter time period. Yeah. Could we get some initial information that is quantum enhanced before it collapses to a class state? Is that one way we can get more information? Th that is one way, definitely. And for those quantum sensors that I'm talking about, which are spin quantum sensors, either the technological uh, quantum sensor that I work with or the biological sensors that I'm interested in, those electron spin quantum sensors, they have quantum-like behavior for much longer time scales than the scales that you just mentioned. And that's what makes them super attractive. They remain quantum for about like nanoseconds to, to microseconds timescales, which is unusually long. And if you radically cool down a system, I guess that buys you more time, right? But it would be far more interesting to be able to look at systems kind of under their native conditions, let's say temperature. But a time is the biggest lever in, in order to be able to tease out like quantum effects, right? Or are there other... Time uh, actually tells you how good of a sensor that object can be. An uh, object that live as a quantum object for very, very long, can be sensitive to very fine 
changes in the, in the parameter that you want to measure, say very fine changes in magnetic field. Quantum objects that are not very good at keeping their quantum character are, are still quantum sensors, except that they're crappier. They are only sensitive to larger magnitudes of the thing that you want to measure, right? So it, to some extent, it's a trade-off, right? Time only tells you for how long you can acquire, which tells you like how small a quantity you can end up measuring with that particular so, quantum object. So it sounds like if you look at like Heisenberg uncertainty at the extremes of a given Heisenberg trade-off, incredibly short time periods, or, you know, I don't know, other factors. If but I don't know if I'm putting this properly, but again, at the extremes of an uncertain relationship, uh, let's say momentum versus, uh, you know, placement of an electron, let's say, are you able to then use quantum effects to figure out more about the system without violating the uncertainty? Not necessary to think about the, the uncertainty principle at all here. Basically, uh, the, the thing that makes it work is not the uncertainty principle, it's the fact that a system can be put into a superposition state. It's a superposition, and if you will, uh, the possibility of going back and forth reversibly between two quantum states, and this superposition being affected by the, the knob that you're that you're tuning, the, the thing that you want to measure. This is what makes it... Treehouse live rosin liquid diamond vape pens combine the impressive taste and potency of live rosin extract with the power of liquid THC diamonds to bring you an unrivaled buzz and mouth-watering flavor profile. If you like getting lit, Head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. One E, not two. When you go there, take your vape game up to new heights. Enjoy 30% off your order and get a free Acapulco Gold HHC pre-roll when you use coupon code GENIUS. Again, that's G-E-N-I-U-S. Hurry because the offer expires August 31st, 2023. Treehouse, the best that legal, delivered to your door, THC has to offer. So what kind of useful information can be captured from what kind of systems? Oh, so for example, you can import the technological quantum sensor that I used to work with. Uh, you can capture uh, very fine magnetic field information. For example, uh, I know that some companies are already de deploying that sort of sensors to, uh, to, to prospect for oil. They look at magnetic fields produced by carbon-13 in oil samples. And if they find that uh, tiny tiny magnetic field, they know that there's oil somewhere. That same quantum sensor is now being used to develop better uh, magnetic resonance imagers, right? So this is the type of information that we can have, except that I look at the same type of sensor in nature. And for example, the, the poster child of this field that I work in, and I'm, I'm going to, to preface this by saying, that's not the only example. It's the example that you might have heard about. It has to do with birds. I, I really don't care about birds, but birds made this transition from uh, biology to chemistry to physics. Birds uh, are known to follow the magnetic field of the Earth as they migrate, at least as a partial cue. And the magnetic field of the Earth is tiny. It's order of magnitudes smaller than the magnetic field produced by your cell phone. And right now, the, the most plausible way on how they do this is by using a type of quantum sensing, like supported by a molecule in the birds. So in solution, there is no doubt that a cer the certain molecule that, that is of relevance to the birds, that it works as a bona fide quantum sensor at room temperature. If you put them in a vial, they respond to magnetic fields in a way that is indistinguishable from quantum sensing with the electron in diamond. Uh, however, the evidence for birds is only correlative. 
That is, birds respond to magnetic fields in a way that is consistent with this type of independent chemical reactions. And whereas this all started with birds, this is by no means only restricted to birds or only restricted to the molecule of importance to the birds. There's a whole lot more molecules that in solution are known to be quantum sensors, except that the chemists don't call it like this. I call them like this because I have a different training. Uh, and there's tons of correlative evidence at the levels of cells, of plate cells, that respond to magnetic fields in a way that is consistent with this type of quantum-like sensing driving the phenomenon under the hood. Can you say that biological entities are able to utilize and harness quantum effects and in systems internal to them or in their environment? Is that blunt to be looked? That is the thing that we want to prove. So in test tube chemistry, there is no doubt that this happens at room temperature in vials, right? For molecules stumbling, there's no doubt about that. The problem is that exactly this, the next level, the next land scale of evidence comes from complex organisms such as birds, flies, plates of cells that all respond to magnitudes in a way consistent with this quantum phenomenon. There is no direct link to observe that, for example, Right now, there is no experiment on Earth that can indistinguishably, like irrefutably, prove or refute that a superposition can be maintained inside a cell, let alone utilized by a cell. Actually, that's exactly the bridge that we're trying to make in my own lab. We're developing quantum-like experiments that are going to try to, to see whether superpositions can be maintained and if they can be maintained inside a cell, if they can then be used if they can be correlated to downstream physiological process. Well, what about like a single cell and maybe a microfluid type system? You know, I, I know you wouldn't see all the biological interactions and effects, but the um, a system in which you could see uh, quantum behavior. That's exactly what we're trying to do. And uh, what we want to do is measure electron spin effect in, say, a protein inside a single cell. And we do this using the same, to we will do this, we're still building those, those instruments in the same way that people do to measure spin states in that particular uh, defect, in, in, in that particular electron uh, and electron spin in diamond. For example, for that particular electron spin in diamond, the material diamond, it fluoresces at different intensities, it emits light at different intensities if that particular electron spin is up or down. So just by tracking fluorescence intensities, you can do what people in quantum call a quantum state readout. It turns out that for the exact same reasons having to do with the photophysics of what's going on, those molecules that can sustain independent chemical reactions, this type of quantum sensing that is native to, to this class of proteins, those proteins, they also fluoresce at different intensities if the particular spin uh, that does the quantum sensing is up or down. Hence, just by looking at fluorescence intensity of those proteins inside a single cell, we might be able to uh, do quantum state without inside a single cell, which is exactly what we're set out. It's going to take years, right? But that's exactly the goal, to start doing some bona fide quantum measurements inside a single cell to see if we can find evidence with very sophisticated technology that a single cell can, first of all, sustain superpositions for long enough for them to matter. Well, if this is happening spontaneously or as a normal behavior of non-biological systems, I would think that it would happen at least spontaneously in a very short time duration in biological systems. It doesn't answer whether it's directed by the organism of the cell, but it should at least be happening pretty regularly, right? If they're used by the cells, yes, I am with you. I also believe that those things happen 
quite frequently and in a very, possibly in a very regulated way. But, but even if they're not used, let's say by cells, they're probably happening with or without maybe the cell's knowledge based on, could you make that inference at least of that high baseline of, of this and non-biological well, first of all, I don't know what you mean by cell knowledge. What do you mean by cell knowledge? Well, okay, within a cell. So if these quantum states occurring in non-biological systems like diamonds, is it likely that they're occurring in biological systems, but the biological system, the cell or the organism, whatever, may not be aware of these, or it may be aware of them and causing them to happen for some use in biology? So I gave two levels of it. I have no idea about the if is the cell aware because I don't want to enter that. For me, the cell is like a bag of biochemical reactions, right? And there is evidence that this type of quantum light sensing is happening inside cells. And this evidence is correlative only, right? In the sense that things seem to respond to magnetic fields in a way that it's what would be expected should that behavior of or should that physiological response be driven by this type of phenomenon. For example, uh, the cool thing about this type of quantum sensing that, that happens in, in chemical in solution is the fact that the magnitude of the effect is not monotonically increasing or decreasing with magnetic field strength. And that's extremely important. So this is well understood from the physics of it, but... Maybe it's not the field strength, but the alignment with field lines of the Earth, or the proximity to a destination. I mean, there's, there's probably other factors just besides field strength. Oh, no, that, that's for sure. That's for sure. And even if you model those those phenomena that are, are certain to happen within like vials, and if, if you take into account that molecules are tumbling in solution, right, the field strength is not uh, directly, like field strength does not correlate with the, with the magnitude of the effect, which some might think is strange, right? People used to think about those or like energy is deposited in the, in the cell world. So the idea is that there are some particular fields that mess up very precisely with some chemical reactions. And each chemical reaction that can sustain these quantum sensing-like phenomena, they respond very specifically to some fields. The important part of this is the fact that big magnetic fields don't have an effect. If you put those magnetosensitive proteins inside uh, an MRI in the hospital with like which has like a three Tesla magnet, the three Tesla magnet will not make a difference. What will make a difference is the tiny magnetic field of the earth is the magnetic field of your cell phone, right? So a, a lower magnitude type stimulus would be less likely to disrupt a quantum state that's very fragile, right? That's not the reason. That is also not the reason. It has to do with a trade-off between the external magnetic field that the protein is sensing and uh, the magnetic field produced by uh, nearby uh, nuclear spins that interact with the electron pin that is doing the sensing. It's a funky mechanism that is well understood in chemistry. It's not that obvious. And this is what made people like feel weird about it. We care about weak magnetic field that alter physiology in seemingly very relevant ways. Within, like, let me just give you some examples. For example, there is correlative evidence that weak magnetic fields change the yield of DNA repair, how much reactive oxygen species like cellular oxidants are produced, messes up uh, weak magnetic fields, mess up with cell uh, cytoskeleton and cell migration. Weak magnetic fields can both up and down regulate cellular proliferation, right? Which can, if you can make cells proliferate more, it's good for biomanufacturing. If you can make cells proliferate less, it's good for cancer. 
The problem is that right now, there is no deterministic understanding of which magnetic fields deterministically treat each one of those quantum sensing-like chemical reactions, right? So people have been seeing those effects, those correlative effects for like 40 years. People have corroborated those effects with test tube chemistry, but there is no deterministic understanding of which magnetic fields can be predicted to change which chemical reaction, which make make it like a math. And this is why I think that we need to throw super high-tech quantum technology at those systems to treat those spins as bona fide quantum sensors so that we can have a, if you will, a deterministic quantum code book on how to treat each chemical reaction for a particular. In a biological system, it operates within certain parameters uh, to be a biological system. So why wouldn't you do a, a, a perturbation that is within that keeps it within its normal parameter range. Why would you do a, an extreme perturbation that the biological system, as you're saying, is just not going to respond to? I mean, it sounds like that's already a known thing. It's not an extreme perturbation, right? It's like you don't need a three to Tesla field versus Earth. No, no, no. But when people think about things, they usually think about nuclear magnetic resonance. For nuclear magnetic resonance, you need those three Tesla spins. And if you put certain samples inside a three Tesla magnet, you can take, you can influence the spins, say the nuclear spins, the electron spins in a way that is different from the way that I'm describing, right? So there are things that people can do with spins at very high magnetic fields. And you're right, those uh, things that I'm talking about only require tiny perturbation, and that's good. We don't need a big perturbation, but the problem is like, which small perturbation do you apply to tweak those endogenous quantum knobs? Do you apply 50 microtesla at three gigahertz frequency, or do you apply two millitesla at DC? Right, the phase space is huge. I would say keep it within the range of what that, if you're dealing with biological organisms, keep the stimulus in the range of what they would experience as they go through their life. You know, I, I would, and again, this is just an armchair suggestion, but to look at these biological systems as bags of chemicals, I think it's mistaken. I think if you would look first and see again what a typical perturbation might be for a living organism, you're much more likely to see that behavior or not, or that respond by the, by the organism. Yeah, like right. birds, you know, why stimulate them with, very high magnetic fields, keep it within the range of what they will experience. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's exactly how people find out that birds respond to weak magnetic fields in a way that is consistent with this type of quantum sensing-like reaction being present. So birds are, during migration season, they're put into cages and then people mess up with this very weak magnetic field and they the birds want to go out of the cage in different directions, right? And if they wanted to migrate to another direction, given by this external weak magnetic field. For cells, sort of the same. And it's still very unclear. For birds, it's like a migration problem. And we understand it has to do with magnetic field of the earth. But for like cells, or like cancer cells, it's sort of unclear. First of all, what magnetic fields are inside the cells. Just magnetic. If you look at like, let's say the ion channels in a cell's membrane, you know, what are the voltages there? And maybe you do a perturbation, a voltage-based perturbation that's within their normal range. So that is the point. Those things are not, I think, well-established. I am all for it. I have, this is just a hypothesis, not based on any very strong data or anything. I hypothesize whether uh, ion fluxes that regulate all our cellular processes very finely whether those ion fluxes might not be generating very localized in space and time magnetic fields that might be altering this type of quantum chemical reactions that ends magnetic fields and that might be influencing a physiological functioning downstream, right? But you're absolutely 
right. I think that is precisely the type of regime that should be looked at. And yeah, we know that this knob is present even for fields that are possibly not super well natively explored by cells. So people see effect at the range of, of frequency ranges from megahertz to, to gigahertz. It's not that clear to me what type of chemical processes inside the cells would be producing this type of frequencies. And yet we see organisms respond to this, frequent, to this frequency in a way that, well, the, the knob is there, right? Whether it's being used by the cell or not is up for discussion. But the knob is there and it's responding, which I think... Well, I mean, like like some people say, you, know, you may consider this way out or not, but the structure and spacing of base pairs in DNA, it actually a, a micro antenna, like in the, I believe in the terahertz range, you know, extremely short range, possibly signal other things in the cell. Some people think it's crazy, but whatever. I guess if you think of biological processes as a, a hole in golf, you know, how do you start being on the putting green instead of like trying to drive the ball? You know, to the putting green, like if you can look and see what are the conditions for this particular biological process that would, would be like being on the putting green, but not on the hole, you're at least in the range. And then maybe you'll see more effect, you know, you'll get a lot more quickly. I, I agree that that's exactly the point of the instruments that we're developing, right? Because right now it's all heuristic. Right now people grab a little bit of hay and, and happen to find the needle. But there's very little deterministic understanding of, if you will, the underlying a spin physics of a particular molecule in a particular part of this. Our hope is that our quantum light experiments will help us understand at this level, right? At the level of, for your quantum audience only, uh, at the level of the spin Hamiltonian of the electrons within a particular molecule, within a particular cell region. Right now, it's all a mess. What we want to do is make a map of the haystack, right? So that we know where to look for needles. Right now, Every field that, if you go for, if you look for papers, oh, this weak field did this, this weak field did that, it's all heuristic. There is no reason why a particular frequency, a particular strength has been chosen. It just happens to cause something that is consistent with a particular electron spin dependent chemical sensing or, or chemical reaction, right? But we need, you're absolutely right, we need to go beyond this heuristic finding of uh, fields that might alter the knob. You're absolutely right. Well, I've heard, you know, photosynthetic processes that there are some quantum effects in order for the, you know, for the losses not to be so much that the photosynthetic effect is wasted or that, you know, the traveling of the various electrons involved in the chemical cascade is so fast that it appears to necessitate quantum effects. So that may be another type of system you could, you could look at. Exactly. So that's not uh, electron spin dependent. And again, the evidence photosynthetic for quantum effects in photosynthesis is again correlative in the sense that for photosynthetic complexes in solution, this has been observed, right? For uh, photosynthetic complexes being excited by lasers in the lab, except that there is no unambiguous quantum-like evidence beyond the correlative or causal evidence. Uh, we would like to have causal evidence that this happens inside a single cell in a plant in nature. Yeah, I think a fundamental problem is if you view biological systems as as just bags of chemicals, then how could there ever be a cause or effect? There would be, you, you're saying by definition, there is no cause in biology. No, 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 no. I, I think that we can unambiguously prove or refute down to a certain noise level that we can measure whether quantum effect can be maintained inside a cell. Because as you mentioned, and as I mentioned too, right, everything that starts quantum dies classical very rapidly. 
So even though superpositions can be maintained in solution at room temperature, there is no guarantee, and that's I think what keeps physicists from this field. There's absolutely no guarantee that inside a cell that is lives in a hot, wet, complex environment, that that environment is amenable for superpositions to be maintained for long enough so that they can act upon something. What is quote unquote long enough in a biosystem to be useful? Like, what are some of the parameters that would, you know, so, yeah, we have to define that. Yes, let me define that, the, the phenomenon that I studied, that, for example, birds, right? Birds, if they're using this quantum process to be guided, they are sensing a magnetic field, which is about 50 microtesla, which is tiny. So let me give you a or, an order of magnitude back of the envelope calculation. Electron spin in the presence of a magnetic field they preset around the magnetic field that they see, that they're sensing, with a particular frequency for your quantum audience known as the Larmor frequency. This frequency has to do with how strong the field associated with this frequency is a period of oscillation. Okay, How long it takes to completely process one around this field. For a free electron spin to be able to... uh, So a free electron spin takes about 750 nanoseconds to process along around a magnetic field of the strength of the magnetic field of the Earth. So as a first order approximation, there are much better ways to approximate that. And that approximation is already like being very general. It doesn't need to be that long, but we say that an electron spin can send a magnetic field if it can process one around this field without losing its quantum character. This means that if BERT were to be sensing the magnetic field of the Earth, the electron spin in that particular protein inside the BERT would need to be quantum for about 750 nanoseconds. So in solution, it has been shown that that protein that can sustain this type of electron spin reaction in solution, the protein of relevance for the BERTs, those electrons though in that protein at room temperature in a solution are quantum for about one microsecond. So in solution, this molecule can sense the magnetic field of the Earth. What we would like to prove or refute is whether the same protein inside the cell can have electrons being quantum for at least 750 nanoseconds. This is the first thing. If the electrons inside this protein, the particular electrons that we care about, are not quantum inside the cell for at least 750 nanoseconds, these superpositions, though these quantum states, cannot be maintained inside the cell for long enough for the cell to sense a magnetic field. So that's level zero of evidence that needs to exist. This level of evidence doesn't exist anywhere on Earth for no experiment doing quantum effects in biology. Is that clear? Does that help with more or less like what I mean to be long enough to do something useful? Well, how do you know that's the minimum length of time? What about a half cycle or a quarter? Exactly. There are better ways of doing this, but like it, it doesn't need to be a whole cycle. But in the worst case picture, if it can do a whole cycle, right, it, it can definitely send. Maybe it simply doesn't need to be a whole cycle. That may just kind of that would, you know, block you from understanding. No, no, no. That, that's completely fine. We just want to be as strict as possible with respect to this bound. Okay, so this is the, the long enough that I'm talking about. You're right, it doesn't need to be a full a full cycle. But like if we can show that that particular electron in that protein can only be quantum for picosecond inside a cell, that particular electron will never be able to feel the magnetic field of the Earth. So that particular electron cannot sustain superpositions for long enough to be useful in the task of sensing the magnetic field of the Earth. 
oh, why? What if it's uh, for a shorter duration? What will happen? It just won't be able to give enough information to guide the bird? That's correct. That's correct. It won't be able to sense the magnitude of the shield. You can think of it as like a, a plot. So effect as a function of time, right? You can think about that electron as yielding some sort of sensor information, right? At some point, this sensor information will die out. If there's some oscillation or something, it will die out. So that acquiring the signal for longer than the time where the signal dies out is worthless because when you Fourier transform the signal, you're not going to be able to prove your resolution in the spec. Here, it's the same. The time of relevance is the time before your signal dies out, right? If your signal dies out very, very fast, the level of detail in your Fourier transform of your signal versus time plot in your spectrum will not be very refined. So what you want is for there to be signal for long enough that you can resolve features in your spectrum that are fine enough given field strengths that you want to measure, in this case, the, the magnetic field of the Earth. What other field parameters besides magnitude are present and may be useful? Are there any? Yes, the model predict dependencies on magnetic field frequent, uh, magnetic field strength frequency, and for molecules that are uh, hooked up, molecules that are hooked up to a membrane or are aligned in some way, dependencies with magnetic field direction as well. So even uh, so, the Earth's magnetic field within you know a magneto sensing cell inside a bird is the magnitude enough to change the direction of no, some of the not. granules. Precisely. Birds are known to have an inclination compass. So this means that they can sense the inclination of the magnetic field. This means that they know when they're going towards the equator or away from the equator, but they cannot tell if they're north of the equator or south of the equator. They know how to get closer and further from the equator, but they do not know north from south. This particular uh, compass can only be effective if the birds are sensitive to magnetic field direction. And this can only be accomplished if the molecules that perform this magnetosensing are somehow attached. And that's the most current understanding is that the molecules that perform the magnetosensing are indeed attached in a very organized way to the retina of the birds. But at a typical speed of bird flight, how fast is the inclination data changing? And would that necessitate, you know, uh, quantum-based information in order to interpret? So that I do not know, and I don't think anyone has quantified that for BERT. And in fact... Uh, well, would that be a difficult calculation and maybe a useful one? You are uh, right, and there are several things you're right. And I think that the thing here is also, like, what are the cues that the birds are following to respond to this magnetic field? So the idea being that bird and other organisms, they respond to different magnetic fields in that they respond to different physiological concentrations coming from these quantum sensing-like chemical reactions, meaning different spin states actually make two orthogonal pathways to be, chemical pathways to be taken, and the final products of those pathways are macroscopically different, right? So it's not known in birds, because birds are complex, what exactly that looks like for birds. So if you think of a bird's flight, like let's say I'm a bird sitting in a tree and I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm taking a rest and now I, I fly off, you know, the first couple of seconds as I'm ascending through the sky, I'm orienting to the magnetic field. The information is changing very rapidly. And then once I align myself with the magnetic field, there should be very little change or perturbation as I make my flight. And then let's say a, a gust of wind hits me and I have to reorient back onto the magnetic field. 
again, that would be like a short duration change that I'd have to make. So like if you, if you model a bird's flight like that, at least with those three parameters or three types of flight, maybe the information is to be found in the initial takeoff or when there's a perturbation or all times. The idea it is look again, again, this is neither proved nor if people hypothesize whether there might be some sort of modulation of the light sensitivity in the bird's eye, depending on which direction the bird looks at. So that the bird looking right and seeing certain magnetic field lines see like bright, the bird looking left, interacting with another magnetic field line, would see less bright so that the bird would know that it should follow always the faster, the, the, the sorry, the, the brighter picture. So the chemical reaction, the, the quantum mechanism involved in that is extremely fast. Quantum mechanism involved in this sensing happens for sure between nanoseconds and microseconds, but the consequences of this process are felt much, much more downstream at longer time scales. It's not known right now. I don't think people even hypothesize how long it might take for the bird to react like macroscopically to those quantum changes, right? So, but it might be that the birds are getting this downstream information fast enough so that it can reorient given a gust of wind or, or when they, they rest in a tree or something. That's exactly the problem of working with like complex organisms such as birds, right? That's why... I am advocating to start much simpler, to start with a single cell where you can measure at the nanoscale pin state and correlate state with like biological markers such as production of reactive oxygen species or, or something else so that you can actually see whether certain spin state downstream, but at much faster time scales than, than expected with a bird, say milliseconds to, to minutes time scales, how a certain prepared spin state correlates with different produced parameters of reactive oxygen species, of something else, of cytoskeleton reorganization. This is why I'm advocating for a much bottoms-up approach, which I think is missing. I think you should do both. Yeah. In a bird, for instance, you know, maybe the initial, again, orienting to the magnetic field and any gross adjustments that need to be made are classical. But once I'm, I'm flying, let's say, right along the proper proper path, now maybe my quantum system kicks in very light okay. perturbations to help me course correct. So, you know, I, I understand the bottom-up approach. A lot of people do that, but I think you should approach it from both. Assume that birds are doing this, at least to hypothesize, you know, some reason why. And that, again, I'm not saying do most of your experimentation that way, but maybe 5% of your experimentation and thought should be to the, the most complex end and see what comes out at you. And then inform your bottoms-up approach. That's that exactly what we're doing. Like this low-tech evidence, as I mentioned, has existed for like 50 years, right? This low-tech approach of just trying to see more or less what complex organisms respond. This is more of what I'm calling like correlative data that, as you mentioned, can give good starting parameters of field strength, frequency for our more complicated experiment. But I'm arguing that those low-tech correlative experiments, they're necessary, but they're not sufficient. I think that we'll get sufficiency once we have those quantum-like experiments, because those quantum-like experiments have the potential to move the needle. Right now, the, the needle hasn't moved for 50 years, and the needle hasn't moved because low-tech experiment is very, like, low, data coming from low-tech experiments, they're very easily dismissed by the community, by the quantum community, by the bio community. You have no idea how people 
lecture me on how everything that people must have seen and even the, the, the correlative data that we see in our own lab, how that might, must be the result of artifact. So people are very skeptical about this type of data. And that's why I believe after being exhausted by this type of people who say that's not enough, I agree with them. That's not enough. And that's why I'm insisting that the needle will move once we throw quantum-like technology at those electron spins in biology, as if they were, because they are quantified quantum objects that putatively uh, are active in nature. Well, remember, some people will be never satisfied. So don't necessarily, I know, I know you're going to operate in the environment you're in, but just yeah, remember, no, no. people are never satisfied no matter what you do. I know. No, that's a fair. And I would like to engage with people, right? So I would like to, to like have quantum people talk to me, have bio people talk to me. Right now, the quantum physicists don't engage because they're not all familiar with quantum objects surviving room temperature conditions, like the, the technological quantum sensor that I mentioned. And the bio people uh, are not necessarily quantum literate to understand. What I'm proposing is essentially electromagnetics in biology. So electromagnetics in biology comes with, with a huge baggage, at least in the, in the West. In the East, in like Japan, China, and Russia, research in electromagnetics and biology has never stopped. But in the West, it has been associated with like new age stuff, people wearing like magnet bracelets. So that comes with a lot of baggage. And what I'm proposing is looking at this electromagnetic knob in biology, right? And, and bio people are used to, to chemical things. And then they come to me and say, well, we have been doing very successfully chemical things in biology, tweaking biology chemically for like decades. Why, why do we need this new knob right, that apparently is there? So I think that the best way to, to engage with bio people is by, by bringing quantum literacy to them. I, I hope that one day uh, everyone will, will have enough understanding of quantum to at least you know, be able to engage with other people. So our world is, is already quantum. We live in a quantum world. Like our laptops work because of a quantum phenomenon called tunneling, GPS, lasers. They're all quantum-driven already. We already live in a quantum world. So it would be nice for everyone to, to learn a little bit of quantum to understand the world that they live in and to understand how quantum might be underlying some macroscopic things. For example, the property of materials, of like humankind-made materials, or maybe a, a more complete understanding of biology. And like in the same way that 25 years ago, the only people who learned how to code were people going to engineering school, physics school, now, especially among the educationally privileged, people learn code in middle school, right? So I hope it will be true with quantum, quantum classes in the future, that everyone will be able to learn a little bit about quantum in high school, right? To, to understand a little bit what drives all the technology that powers uh, our world. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Clarice, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, fielding all my, uh, my softballs I was throwing at you. But you did great. And uh, thank you so much for coming and explaining all those. Where can people find out more about your work? A couple of things. I would suggest that um, you Google my opinion piece at the American Physical Society online magazine. So I'm actually very proud because this seems to be one of the first times that APS, the American Physical Society, actually mentioned the subject. My opinion piece is called It's Time to Take Quantum Biology Research Seriously. And it argues why, again, I think that people should start noticing this electromagnetic knob that uh, exists in biology. Uh, I can also be found on Twitter, uh, Clarice D. Aiello, so it's L-A-R-I-C-E 
V as in Delta, then A-I-E-L-L-O. And uh, my lab Twitter is qubit underscore lab also on Twitter. Okay. Excellent. Thank you so much, Clarice. Remember, before you go, you've got to check out treehouse.com. That's T-R-E, only one E, T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E dot com. They offer an array of premium legal THC products, including gummies, vapes, pre-rolls, and more. And they're all delivered right to your doorstep with unique blends of carefully selected cannabinoids, all rigorously lab tested to ensure quality and consistency. Treehouse products give you the buzz you simply can't get anywhere else. Head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. Remember, there's one E, not two. And enjoy 30% off your order and get Acapulco Gold HHC pre-rolls when you use the coupon code GENIUS at checkout. Hurry because the offer expires August 31st, 2023. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.